Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito. I'm here with Dr. Nicholas London of the Retina Consultants of San Diego Group, also Chief of Ophthalmology at Scripps Memorial Hospital in, in La Jolla. Nick, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Hey, Carmen. Thank you so much. I'm very honored to be here. So today we're going to talk about suprachoroidal gene therapy for neovascular AMD uh, using the RGX314 vector from Regenex Bio. So can you tell us a little bit about where, where we're at with this clinical trial? Absolutely. So um, this is a very exciting trial. So this is a phase two multi-center study that's being done at about 15 sites across the U.S. It's currently enrolling. It's a, it's a study made of five cohorts with two dose escalations in the middle of those cohorts. And we're now enrolling into cohort five. So we've fully enrolled in cohorts one through four. Uh, and I've got, we have some preliminary data that's been presented on the first two of those uh, cohorts. The study uh, involves treating patients with previously treated wet AMD. So these are patients that we see in our clinic receiving injections. And we offer them enrollment in the, into this study, which is a study looking at using gene therapy, RGX314 which uses an adenovirus vector to get a small episome into the tissue of the eye, which actually encodes for a protein that's very similar to ranibizumab, which is one of our more commonly used uh, anti-VEGF injections that we have available. Um, so we've presented some data. I presented uh, data at the recent Retina Society meeting in uh, early October on cohort one, and Bob Avery then recently presented data on cohort two, uh, six-month data, uh, at the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting just recently in New Orleans. So uh, the patients that were enrolled, how dependent were they on injections uh, at the time of study entry? Yeah, these were patients that were very dependent. So the average uh, annualized injection frequency was like 8.8 .8 injections, I believe, uh, over the past year. These patients were receiving about every Q six to eight week injections prior to study enrollment. So what's the rationale uh, about using suprachoroidal injection for gene delivery? To me, that's one of the most exciting parts. I mean, so we can do gene delivery in the subretinal space. Um, we're pretty familiar with those subretinal surgeries that in involve a bleb formation. We see it for, um, with Luxterna, we see it in some of our geographic atrophy studies, as well as um, some of our other um, uh, wet AMD studies, including uh, RGX314, which is being looked at in the subretinal space with atmosphere. Um, Suprachoroidal treatment brings the treatment into the office, which to me is, is very exciting and more uh, palatable to a lot of our, our patients. So using the clear side needle, which is a, a 0.9 or a 1.1 millimeter needle, we can do the injection in the office and get the gene therapy product into the suprachoroidal space with a very easy and essentially painless or, or minimally painful injection in the office. Um, and you know, getting the, all we really need to do with a product like this is get it into the tissue of the eye. The, the gene therapy product doesn't need to be made essentially close to the macula, just like our intravitreal injections, the protein just needs to be into the eye and it will get to the macula. So if it's being produced anywhere in the eye, it should get there. So tell us about the initial study results. So in, uh, in cohorts one and two, which are the study results that have been presented so far, we've seen some pretty impressive results. So 
in terms of efficacy, so we've seen very stable central retinal thickness over the course of six months in the study following study enrollment and very similar to the patients who were in the control group. Those patients were treated with monthly ranibizumab. Uh, and we've seen very stable visual acuity results with essentially in cohort two, no change in visual acuity following study enrollment from day one uh, at the very beginning of the study, um, which is very similar again to the monthly ranibizumab patients. Uh, we've seen good safety results. So we've had you know, your normal kind of intravitreal injection or suprachoroidal injection in, in this case with subconch hemorrhage, um, erythema, um, things like that that are sort of common that, that we expect irritation. Uh, we've seen some cases of intraocular inflammation, and that's something that as a, as a group, all of us retina specialists are very concerned about intraocular inflammation and appropriately so given other things that we've seen recently. Um, and we've seen about 25% of the patients treated so far in the first two cohorts, but they've all been mild. They've, they've all been one to two plus, and they've all resolved within days to weeks with a topical corticosteroid. And, and one thing to keep in mind with this study is that nobody was on prophylactic corticosteroids. So there were no systemic or topical corticosteroids in, in this study whatsoever. So these patients developed a mild anterior uh, chamber cell for the most part, one patient with a mild vitreous cell, all were put on topical you know, prednisolone or similar and all resolved. Um, there were a couple cases of episcleritis in, in cohort two that we're kind of looking at. And that again, uh, for the vast majority of patients resolved very quickly with topical corticosteroid. Um, in cohort two, those patients received two injections. So that was a doubling of the dose from cohort one, um, from two E11 to five E11 gene copies. And so we, we wonder if with that, that two injection technique, if that's why those patients uh, may have developed this transient episcleritis. Uh, but all of my patients, at least, that had it are doing very, very well. Um, no concerning inflammation, no severe cases of inflammation in, in any patients uh, whatsoever. And probably the most exciting thing of all is the reduction in the injection frequency. Uh, we've seen about 75, uh, 70, 75% reduction in the annualized injection frequency in the first two cohorts. Cohort one was about 76% reduction in injections. And excuse me, cohort two was about 70% reduction. Um, and about a third of patients in each of these cohorts were injection free. So these patients went from receiving injections every eight weeks uh, prior to study enrollment, and these weren't cherry-picked patients by any means, um, and they, these patients, a third of the patients in the study, received no further injections over that six-month period. So all in all, I'm, I'm very excited about, about these results. I can't wait to see the higher dose, uh, and I can't wait to dive deeper into the data in, in some of these, but I think it's going to be a really big game-changer for a lot of our patients, and, and I'm very excited about it. Are all of the cohorts fully enrolled yet or not? So the first four cohorts are fully enrolled and we're working on cohort five, which is the last uh, cohort. So um, I don't know the exact number, but I'd guess there are about 15 slots left or 15 patients to enroll. So these are the, the and the cohorts uh, simply vary by drug dose. Is that correct? For the most part. So the first cohort is that two E11 gene copies. Uh, cohorts two and three are the five E11, so doubling and cohorts four and five are 1E12, so another doubling of the, the gene copies. 
Within the second and third cohort, the, the cohort two is NAB negative, so neutralizing antibody negative for adenovirus. And uh, cohort three is NAB positive. And the same thing for uh, cohorts four and five. They just vary. Uh, they're the same dose, but they differ uh, based on the gene copies. I'm sorry, the, uh, the NAB positivity. Mm-hmm. And what do you what do you mean by NAB positivity for so, so for neutralizing people? antibodies? So they're they're wondering if if patients that have been exposed to adeno uh, associated virus may have a different response to the gene therapy product. So if you have uh, pre existing preformed neutralizing antibodies to adenovirus and you're treated with a gene therapy product that's delivered by an adeno associated virus vector, will you have a, a different response? And so they're looking at that that um, the difference. There and seeing if those neutralizing antibody positive patients have that different response. In terms of uh, reduction in injection frequency, uh, how similar or different are these results uh, compared to the subretinal gene delivery? So I don't I don't have the the numbers exactly. I don't think we we know the numbers. We may have from cohort from sorry the phase one two a study uh, some data, and I think they had an impressive reduction in the injection frequency. I think we expect a more potent response with the subretinal delivery, um, which makes you know, sense to me. You're, you're sort of delivering the product into the subretinal space as opposed to the suprachoroidal space. So you, you will likely get a, a more prominent response, but I don't know the exact difference in the reduction in injection frequency. So what's the next step for this uh, treatment, do you think, Nick? Well, we're, um, we're, you know, again, we're going to finish enrolling this. We're going to dive deeper into the data. We're going to look to see if the second doubling of the, uh, the dose has an even more potent effect. If we see a 76% reduction in uh, these initial doses, are we going to see an even more impressive reduction? Um, this is a one-year study, and then we're going to do a long-term follow-up to see what happens over the course of time. I think a lot of people are a little bit wary of gene therapy, given the potential uh, long-term changes that we may see and hopefully not see. Uh, so we're going to be following our patients for, for many years and see what happens. Um, we're again starting to enroll now in the atmosphere study, which is the subretinal delivery study. I think it's going to be fascinating, as you've already alluded to, to look at the differences between suprachoroidal delivery and subretinal delivery. I personally really enjoy the, the suprachoroidal technique. And I find that my patients, if I sort of, I'm, I'm enrolling in both of them. And if I give them the choice about which to be involved in, they're much more excited about the suprachoroidal, but we'll see. I mean, if you're right and, and, um, and we see a more potent response with the subretinal delivery method, then that, that may change that it sort of changes how you describe these studies to our patients. So, you know, we've got a lot of data to still collect, uh, a lot of analyses to, to perform. We need to you know, make sure that this is a safe product. It looks very safe so far, but we need to look deeper at these cases of episcleritis uh, and, and intraocular inflammation, which seem to be a kind of a non-issue at this point. But we, we first priority is safety for our patients. So we need to make sure of that. Well, Nick, thanks so much for joining us on Retina Synthesis. And we'll be back to you <laughs> later uh, next year to find out what's what's going on with the long-term results from this really important study. Thank you, Carmen. It's really an honor to be on this with you. Have a great day. Thank you.